Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 24 and read through the end of the chapter. This will be our final week. This is week number 6 in chapter 1. And then we will move into chapter 2 here in a couple of weeks. Beginning in verse 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Holy Spirit, I've said this often as I have prayed over these last few weeks, but I say it again, this may be one of the most important texts in all of Scripture and maybe some of the most important truth that we could ever wrap our hearts and minds around needs to be integrated into our lives. The Bible says that it is the engrafted Word of God that's able to save our souls. It's not just knowing it, it's allowing that Word to become part of us. And I pray, Lord, in these next few minutes that you would help me Lord, in my weakness, let your strength become perfect. I ask God for your anointing to rest upon my life. Help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. I pray, Lord, though I could never stand here and claim that I am deserving or worthy, I can ask because I need that anointing, and I pray that you would grant it. And I ask the Lord, as I often do, that you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room. This is not a moment that you want us to check out. We're not sharing a book report. I'm not just talking about current events. We are proclaiming the word of life, the word of God that is able to change us and transform us. So captivate our attention in these minutes that we share together today and let the word of God transform us. And I pray, God, that we would all have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Corey Tinboom, um, in her book, In Each New Day, um, wrote these words. If Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, then I would still be lost. It's a pretty powerful statement. If Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem, but were not born in me, then I would still be lost. This is the language of one who understands that uh, a personal encounter and relationship with Christ and an ongoing relationship with him is essential to eternal life. So as we continue now in Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, We pick up the words of Paul at the end of chapter one. And what Paul will do in these verses and we will try to unpack over the next few minutes is he will unveil what a life looks like that continues in Christ. 
that remains in him. Let me just pause for a moment. How many of you would say, I want my life to continue in Jesus. I want to remain in him. We're gonna talk about what that looks like uh, very specifically in just a few minutes. Paul has already made it clear in the early verses of chapter one that we have to have an unwavering foundation. Our lives, our Christian walk must be built upon the person of Jesus Christ. None other will do. He is described in chapter one in great detail, the majesty and the greatness of Christ, the Lord over all. He was created before, or he was, he created all things. He was before all things. He upholds all things by the word of his power, and he reconciles all things to himself. And then last week, we, we talked about that reconciliation, and we began to describe what it looks like in the life of the believer. What does it mean to be reconciled to Christ. First of all, reconciliation is to restore something back to its intended purpose. And so what does it mean for us to be reconciled? We learned that last week, three things. Number one, we must understand that we were before the gospel alienated and enemies from God. Before you came to Christ, before you submitted your life to the Lordship of Jesus, the Bible says all of us were enemies. We were strangers, we were foreigners, we were apart from him, we were distant from him, we were antagonists and adversaries of his. We have to understand that unless you know that you were lost, you can never really be found. Unless you know that you were an enemy, you can never really become his child. And then we talked about how through the work of the cross now, we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. We are now in right relationship with him. But we ended last week by talking about this, that we can have hope and assurance of eternal life if we continue in him, if we continue in him. Look at what Paul said, and this is what we read last week. And you who once were alienated, and you were once enemies in your mind, we talked about thinking right, by wicked works, now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Look at this next phrase, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a minister. And so now, having established that we need to continue in him, because unless we continue, we remain in him, we cannot have the certainty of eternal life. Now we need to know what does it look like to continue in him. If that's our desire, let me ask you again, how many really desire to continue in Christ? Raise your hand if that is your desire. So what does that look like? Three things from our text today. Number one, those who faithfully continue in Christ will share in Christ's sufferings. So how many wish you didn't raise your hand now, right? I knew that. I, that's why I waited until I got you to sign on the dotted line. If you want to continue in him, the text says you have to share in his sufferings. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. It's kind of a strange verse, to be honest, until we really pull back the pieces and look at what it really says. Paul says this, I now rejoice in my sufferings. 
for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul had experienced some really heavy suffering. And he had done that in order to get the gospel to a lost world. He had paid a great price so that the gospel could get carried to Colossae. If you remember, we talked about in the probably the opening message of this series that, that the gospel made it to Colossae because Paul spent three years having services and teaching people in Ephesus, which was just about 100 miles away. It was that ministry in Ephesus that, that allowed the gospel to carry to Laodicea and to Colossae and throughout the Lycus Valley. But while Paul was in Ephesus, he experienced some really harsh suffering. There was a riot that almost killed him in Ephesus. There were plots on several occasions during those three years in Ephesus, plots to take the life of Paul. And he had suffered many other times as well. Listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians 11, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. And look at how he describes his suffering. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. And in Colossians 4.18, the very last verse of Paul's letter to the church at Colossians, he says to them, remember me in my chains. He was in prison when he wrote this letter. Now, I don't think there's anyone here that can even begin to touch the kind of suffering Paul had. He writes this letter from the prison house. And yet Paul says, if you want to continue in Christ, you have to share in his suffering. Suffering hardship, listen to me, is both the calling and the vocation of the church. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 and verse 10, he said, I want to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship, the koinonia of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3, 14, that if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. So Paul says this really strange thing in verse 24. He says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I fill up the sufferings of Christ. What does that even mean? Paul is saying, I am exemplary in my suffering. I am an example in my suffering I'm an example of a servant. I'm not suffering like Christ did. Christ's suffering was uh, expiatory. It, it took the place of us. But Paul said, my suffering, while his was a sacrifice for our sins, mine is an example of servanthood. You remember um, when Paul was on the Damascus road and he was headed to Damascus to kill Christians. Remember that? His name was Saul of Tarsus. His name had not been changed to Paul yet. He was Saul of Tarsus. He had a commission to execute Christians, to persecute them. He was on his way to Damascus to do that. And suddenly he was struck down by a bright light on the road. 
And a voice that spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It changed Saul's life forever. God was speaking to him and God was saying, look at me for just a moment. God was saying, Saul, you are persecuting me. Saul wasn't persecuting God. He was persecuting Christians. He was taking out people that he thought were an affront to God, people that were against God. He was trying to take them out. But suddenly in that moment, Paul's whole idea was changed. He was informed the rest of his life by this moment because he understood that when we suffer, it's Christ that's suffering. We're part of the body of Christ. He is the head. We are the body. And so when we suffer, it's Christ suffering. When Christ suffered, it is us suffering. We are the body of Christ suffering together. And so Paul understood his suffering to simply be a continuation of what Christ had suffered. The suffering of Christ, the Bible says, was a propitiation for our sins. But Paul understood his suffering as a way to propagate the gospel. As a matter of fact, John Piper says, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. Christ's sacrifice on the cross accomplished it. But when we suffer, the gospel is spread. That's what it was for Paul. Bearing hardship for Christ provides benefits to the body of Christ. Look at me for just a moment. I want everybody to catch this point. This is not something that's gonna make you shout. That's okay, but I want you to hear it. What must continue in the world today, if we're gonna reach a lost world, there must be a physical and a tangible display of the kind of self-sacrificing love that Jesus showed for us, or the world will never accept the message of the cross. We have to show that kind of self-sacrifice. That's what changed us. And unless the world sees that in us, they will not see Christ. Missionaries do this all the time. Tuesday in that luncheon, I sat with people that they give their lives. They leave their homes, they leave their families, they leave their grandchildren. They, they, they leave the comfort of home they leave the comfort of security. Sarah Nelson, just a young girl, was here just a few weeks ago going to the Democratic Republic of Congo, leaving a chance probably to, to enjoy a young college life here in the States. But she knows that she has to be willing to suffer so that the gospel can be propagated that the sacrifice of Jesus is not in vain. And so she's willing to take the gospel, even if it means her own personal suffering. When we suffer, we provide strength to others who are going through the same thing. The Apostle Paul says that um, when we are comforted in our difficulties, it enables us then to comfort others who experience those same difficulties. Let me read to you what N.T. Wright says. This is powerful. He says, the reason this, the idea of suffering, sounds so strange to our ears is not the distance between Paul's culture and ours, but rather that the church has forgotten that we are the body of the crucified Christ. Let, let me talk to you for just a moment. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, that was another day. 
That was 2,000 years ago, and that's somewhere else. And so, really, the, the, we, we can't relate to that. We shouldn't try to relate to that because that's, there's too much distance between us and Paul. That's not the problem. The problem isn't the distance between our culture and his culture. The problem is we have forgotten who we are. We are the body of the crucified Jesus. Say amen if you believe that. And that means, let's try that again. Say amen if you believe that. We are the body of the crucified Christ. And that may mean that we, in fact, it does mean we will share in his sufferings. That's what Paul is talking about. If you're going to continue in Christ, you will share and must share in the sufferings of Jesus. C.S. Lewis, credible writer, tells this little metaphor. He says this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that these jobs needed doing, and so you weren't surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building up a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I think sometimes we think God's just going to do a little minor surgery on us and just fix a few things up. God's not interested in just fixing a few things up. He is interested in rebuilding us. And it's through suffering. It's through difficulty. It's through trial that we are transformed. And we become an appropriate habitation for the presence of God. Suffering is not relegated just to the external. Christians will suffer either inwardly or outwardly. There's a suffering to the long, enduring haul of the Christian journey. Not fully seen, but having to trust. Not fully knowing, but still having to take the next step. Resisting temptation, refusing the pleasure of sin for a season. All of that is part of the strife and struggle and the temptation and the suffering that we experience. But we can rejoice because we share with Christ in these sufferings. And so Paul says, if children, then we are heirs. We're heirs of God and we're joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified together. Look on the screen. Those who faithfully continue in Christ will share in Christ's sufferings. How many still want to continue in Christ this morning? All right. And we lost about 30% of you, but that's okay. (laughs) Number one. Number two, um, those who faithfully continue in Christ will share in Christ's glory. It's not just suffering, but we share in his glory. Listen to what Paul says now, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Look at this, the mystery, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, look at this, Christ in you, who is the hope of glory. To think with me for just a few moments. In verse 24, Paul says that his suffering is for the benefit of the body of Christ. Paul says, I suffer for the body. 
I suffer. Your suffering is for the church. It's for the body of Christ. But now he says that he does that because the calling he received was not a calling from man. It was a calling from God. And he had to steward that calling. I know I talk about this occasionally, not all that often. But I will never forget the day that I knew I was called to be a pastor. I was 16 years of age. I was in the old sanctuary, what is now Conaway Hall. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember who preached, Bruce Burklow. I remember the sermon, Blessed are the Pure in Heart. I remember the altar call. I went and knelt and I prayed and I committed my life to pastoral ministry 41 years ago. Never really thought about doing anything else except on some really cruddy Monday mornings, all right? But for the most part, I've never thought about doing anything else. But that calling I knew was not, my dad didn't call me. My mom didn't call me. Pastor Calloway didn't call me. Bruce Burklow didn't call me. It was a calling that God had placed on my life. And so I felt a responsibility to steward that calling. So something that God had given to me. And that's how Paul felt. That's how you all should feel about what God has called you to do. This calling, this stewardship for Paul was to reveal the mystery of God that he says had been hidden for generations. Now the Jews thought that the mystery of God that had been sealed up for all these generations was the end times timetable that was going to show them how the kingdom was going to be restored to the nation of Israel. They thought it was all sealed up and there was this end times revelation that was going to come, how that Israel would once again reign. All along, they thought that there was going to be an explanation of this chart of events that had been locked up until this time. They knew that God's plan was his saving work. The prophets knew that. The apostle Paul knew that. Paul worked hard for that completion. That's why he was such a zealot. That's why he persecuted Christians. He was trying to clean up the ground so that Israel could be restored. But the Damascus road changed him. That, that light on the road changed him because what he found out was the mystery was not an end times timetable about when Israel would be restored. But the mystery was that God was going to take Jew and Gentile, put them together, make them the body of Christ, and Christ was going to be in them and provide for them the hope of glory. Not at all what Paul had expected. There are a lot of Christians today that still think that the mystery of God has to do with when the Antichrist comes and what the mark of the beast is and what is pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennial, post-millennial, pre-millennial, and all of that good stuff. Can I tell you, that's not the mystery God is most concerned about. The mystery he's most concerned about is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. In other words, no matter what happens, no matter what trial comes, no matter what difficulty comes, the mystery is in us is Christ. And so even when we suffer, we have the hope of eternal glory that comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Say amen if you believe that. The mystery was not a person. It was not a timetable. 
It, it was a person, not a timetable. It was a person that would ha- inhabit both Jew and Gentile. And let me tell you who that was that would inhabit them. Paul's already described him. It was the one who was before all things. It was the one who was the creator of all things. It was the one who was the reconciler of all things. That Christ, Paul said, here's the mystery I have for you. That Christ, before all things, creator of all things, reconciler of all things, he is in you, Paul said. And he is the hope of glory, even the Gentiles. We kind of get an essence of this in Romans chapter 5. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character. Look, character produces hope and hope, God's hope never disappoints because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. You see, while we do, look at me, while we do experience trials and tribulations, And while we do share in his sufferings, we rejoice because his presence in us means that no matter what we're going through right now, there is hope of glory someday. Will somebody say amen if you believe it? That's Christ in us. That's the mystery, the hope of glory. It was so important for the Colossians. They were being pushed back on the secular world, the the Greek philosophies, all the ideologies. They were the minority. They were being pushed back on. It was so important for them to know, yes, you will share in Christ's sufferings, but Christ is in you. He's the hope of glory. And even when you're pushed back, you can still stand. And that is so important for us today. I don't know what the next year or two or five or 10 will hold before Jesus returns. I suspect we'll get pushed back on more. I suspect we may become more of a minority. That's very possible. But here's the good news. Though we suffer with Christ, we also share in his glory. Christ in us is the absolute confidence that no matter how much I get pushed back against, I have the hope of eternal glory through Jesus Christ. If we continue in him, the hope of glory sustains us. That's why Paul said, I suppose that my present sufferings are not worthy to can be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And why he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, therefore we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. Look at this, for our light and momentary affliction, which is only for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, they are eternal. Paul said, I can withstand it. I can hold on. I'll have light and momentary affliction, but it's working for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The mystery is Christ is in us. He is the hope of glory. In the movie, To End All Wars, Ernest Gordon was the dean of the chapel of Princeton University for about 26 years. He received his call into ministry while he was in a Japanese concentration camp during World War II. He describes that call. 
Gordon and his fellow prisoners were used as slave labor to build the Thailand-Burma Railroad. Hundreds of them died because of how horribly they were treated. As an officer, Gordon struggled to help his men make sense out of all the suffering that they had to endure. He himself became deathly ill. His life was only spared because there was a chaplain by the name of Dusty Miller who shared his own food rations with Gordon so that he could sustain him. At one point, Chaplain Miller nursed Gordon's body back to health, but he also spoke the words that would nurse Gordon's broken soul back to health as well and ultimately call him into ministry. Chaplain Miller said to him, said to Gordon, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. But when he loses hope, he dies. You see, we may share in his sufferings, but Christ in us is the hope of glory as well. If you continue in him, you not only share in his sufferings, but you share in his glory as well. Let me give you the third and final point this morning. Those who faithfully continue in Christ will share in his character. Verse 28 and 29, him, Paul says, Christ, we preach. Look at this, warning every man and teaching every man. Look at that phrase, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To then this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So Paul is preaching the one who is before all things, the one who is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer, the reconciler, the one who indwells believers. But he's preaching him, but there's even more to know. Paul said, not only do I preach him, but I warn every man and I teach every man in all wisdom. I teach them. This is discipleship. We talked about a few weeks ago Gnosticism, early Gnosticism that had made its way into the city of Colossae and that whole Lycus Valley area. Gnosticism simply said that wisdom and knowledge is only for the elite. Only if you are elite, only if you are really super spiritual and you don't need the physical body, you need nothing around you, only then can you have real gnosis, real knowledge, real Sophia, which is wisdom. That was Gnosticism. Paul says, um, I'm going to teach to every man all wisdom. In other words, it's not just for a few and a little bit. It's all men and all wisdom. Paul, like every pastor should, embraces the design of Christ. And that is that one day all of us will be presented to the Father as holy and without reproach. Do, do you know that um, Paul believed that one day every child of God would be presented to the Father by Jesus? This is my, this is my heir, my joint heir, Jesus would say. He has stood in me, he is righteous, he is without reproach. I don't, my imagination sometimes maybe gets a little carried away, but I almost picture that there will be a day coming when all of us maybe will file 
in this, in this single file line and Jesus will take us up one at a time. And he will present us to the Father. And he will say to the Father, he is mine. He has stood in my righteousness. I present Dennis Boyle as righteous and without reproach. And then he will bring Pastor Clayton up. He probably won't call you Pastor Clayton, but he'll say, this is Clayton Bates. He is, because he has chosen me, he is without blame and he is beyond reproach. And every one of us will be presented to the Father by Jesus. That's the vision that Paul had. And so Paul said, because that's my vision, I'm going to teach every man all wisdom. I'm going to warn him so that one day he can be presented to the Father without reproach and be blameless. That's what Colossians 1, 21 and 22. You who once were alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death so that he can present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Christian leadership and indeed the entire church should encourage people to pursue this goal. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, I forget what's behind and I reach forward to what's before and I press on toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I love this verse, Jude 24, now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Anybody else looking forward to that day that Jesus presents you to the Father and says he is without reproach, not because you were good, but because you continued in Christ. And when you continue in Christ, he shapes you, and he makes you, and he transforms you. If we continue in him, we will one day be presented to the Father as mature, as having the character of Christ. I want you to stand with me, if you would, this morning, please. I'm going to wrap this up, but please just hold steady if you could. I don't know how many of you have heard of the tale of the, uh, the king and the beggar maid. It was a 16th century tale. Shakespeare performed it, painting very famous painting captured it. Uh, the tale goes something like this. There was a king, uh, Kefachua, was an African king. And, and as the tale goes, he never, he never found a woman that he was attracted to the point that he would want to take them as his wife. Um, had lots of friends, but no one that really that King Kefachua really thought, I want to make her my bride. That is until one day he was in the city streets and there was this poor beggar maid. She was dressed in all gray. Her hair was matted, skin was dirty. She didn't look like much, but um, King Kefachua immediately fell in love with her. Like he had never felt before, he was attracted to her. And without courting or dating, the tale says he asked her to be his wife. And the two married and instantaneously 
all of her beggarly elements passed away. No longer had matted hair, dirty skin. She was beautiful to look upon. She was striking. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain. I want you to really think about this. You have to think about everything C.S. Lewis says. You have to really read it slowly. I'm going to read it slowly. But he says this, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because he is what he is, his love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. Because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. We cannot even wish in our better moments that he could reconcile himself to our present impurities no more than the beggar maid could wish that King Hevachua should be content with her rags or dirt. Or that a dog, once having learned to love man, could wish that man were such as to tolerate in his house the snapping, the verminous, polluting creature of the wild pack. What we would here and now call happiness is not the end God chiefly has in view. But when we are such as he can love without impediments, we shall in fact be happy. It's a lot of words. But what it says is this, that uh, for God to be God, he cannot be okay with us still living beneath his destined design for our lives. You know, rightly so, we have learned to preach a theology that says Christ will accept you just as you are, right where you are at. That's not always been the case, at least not always in some circles. We almost made people feel like they had to clean up first before they could even come to Christ. So thankful that we got over that. And we now rightly say, no matter where you're at, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what you've done, it doesn't matter. He loves you and he wants to change your life. He wants you to come into his life. That's right. But sometimes I think we have taken that to mean that not only will he take you where you are, but he'll leave you where you are. That's not his desire. His desire is when you come to him, just where you're at, to let him reside within you and change you from glory to glory into his image and his likeness. He wants to transform us. And so that's what Paul taught. Are you continuing in Christ this morning? If so, you will share in his sufferings, you will share in his glory, and you also share in his character. But first, you must be born again. As Corey Ten Boom said, if Jesus were born 1,000 times in Bethlehem and not in me, I would still be lost. He can't even begin to transform us until we receive him. As Lord and Savior, bow your heads with me if you would. 
Father, thank you for your word today. Speak now to our hearts in these final moments, I pray. In Jesus' name, if you're here today and you've never, you've never been born again, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never surrendered your life to him, but you want to know him, you want to have the hope of eternal life, you want to have the assurance that one day you will live with him eternally. The Bible says that Jesus took your sin, took mine. He paid the penalty on the cross for us so that we could become his righteousness and live with him for eternity. But if you've never received by faith what Jesus did for you, but you want to today, would you slip up a hand right where you're at? I would love the chance to pray with you. Anyone in this room would say, Pastor Kevin, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone in this place today? Anyone in this room? Can I ask a second question then? How many would say, I want to continue in Christ and I want to share in his suffering, in his glory, and in his character. I want to be made like him. I want to continue in Jesus. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's the desire of my heart. Let's worship him.